We are starting, though, with a new program announced earlier today, and it has to do with closed-circuit cameras and more and more homes having these cameras. What would you think about registering yours so police know where there are home security cameras in certain neighbourhoods? Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Mansour Sahak, Media Relations Officer with the North Vancouver RCMP. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Joe, for having me. At first, I think people might think, oh, hold on a second, this seems a bit intrusive. But can you tell us a little bit more, because the North Vancouver RCMP Project Optic is part of this. So how does this actually work? Yeah, so um, great question. So the project was launched in 2020, and basically it's a, a tool, an investigative tool uh, for our officers to use. Uh when there's a crime committed in a certain neighborhood, uh, our officers go to that neighborhood and do a canvas uh, for CCTV and cameras um, to further the investigation or to capture the suspect. That is very resource intensive. And this project helps, it's a tool for them to use so that they can you know, get the contact information they need. And basically how it works is uh, the residents and businesses can register. Uh, they would email us their information and provide us where the address is. And then that information is added onto a geographical map that uh, is populated. And then, so for example, if there's a kidnapping in the Edgemont neighborhood and there's a street, uh, we want to know if anybody has CCTV in that neighborhood. Uh, then we would put that address into this uh, website and then it would populate with all the information. And so it would tell you so-and-so would have a camera at this location. Now, it only shows their name and all the information that the homeowner provides to us. We actually don't have access to their CCTV camera. And so we would need, then we would have that information. We can reach out to the homeowner and say, hey, can we uh, pull out your, you know, use your CCTV camera and look at video footage from this specific time. So it's a tool for us to use. And at that point, I mean, I'm guessing if somebody registers and wants to be part of this program, they're doing it because they feel that if it came to that, they would then share the footage with police officers. But what would happen if there was a scenario for some reason that somebody didn't want to share the footage, even if they were enrolled in the program? Well, it's the, the project is completely 100% voluntary. So um, they email us with their information, um, they provide us their contact information, they want to participate. Um, if they don't want to participate in this, I mean, you, you would be holding crucial evidence. So obviously, we want people to uh, participate. I mean, ultimately, we can't force people to give us their footage and there might be some other options but um, you know it's it's completely 100% voluntary uh, to participate in this project. And how helpful is this then or have you seen how it changes things in that is it a time saver so police don't have to go door knocking and find where the cameras are or what are the other kind of advantages of this? There's huge huge advantages. Um, a lot of times, like when I was a frontline policing, uh, and if there's a some an incident that occurs in the middle of the night, you know, it, it's extremely hard uh, to find the the person that's in charge of a camera, especially for businesses, because we know there's a manager and there's multiple employees, and we just don't know who to talk to, and 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 every minute counts, especially for those in progress crimes, and so. You know, I would go onto this website and then be able to find out who the, who has access to that camera and call them or directly get in touch with them. And so that way, you know, that time limit, that, that 
time gap there is you know, minimized. And so there, and especially for in progress crimes, you know, for major incidents, like if it's a, a kidnapping or if it's a shooting or there's a suspect in the loose and we need that footage, we need that picture ASAP, this project will help immensely with that. Uh, you mentioned businesses. So this would be open then for anybody, whether you're a business or a private residence? That is correct. So we have two categories for businesses and uh, uh, and residential. And, you know, anybody could register with just providing a, a simple email to us. And you mentioned, too, how so this has been in place for some time. And then the idea being that that more people might uh, might join this and that it could become more popular. Does it really depend on more people or more residents and businesses joining it? So you do kind of have that that more um, uh, the larger network. Yeah. So the more people register, the easier it is for us. Um, you know, right now, I just looked at the map a few minutes ago. It's kind of scattered all, all across North Vancouver. Um, and we're one of the few, um, you know, municipalities or agencies that are using this uh, technology or this whole idea. Uh, other jurisdictions are taking over and doing some similar. I think it's a great tool for investigators to use. And uh, we really want people to register and participate because ultimately, if we can you know, catch a bad guy and get him in the act quicker, you know, it ultimately protects the, the residents from, you know, for further crime. And for people that still might have privacy concerns, then, like you said, so registration in the program is voluntary. And what if somebody changes their mind and maybe they, they don't want to be, they want to withdraw from the program? 100%. All they have to do is send us an email saying they don't want to participate. And again, the, the software, the system that we're using, it's 100% secure. Only our officers have access to that. And obviously, we go through background check and, and, and all that's cleared. So only officers have access to that personal information. Members of the public do not. And and if there is a crime, and just to kind of go through something you said, so if a crime occurs and it's deemed that there's likely some footage on this camera, this uh, will take somebody's private home, there's, there's footage on this camera, uh, police contact them because they're part of this program. What if somebody has concerns that you might be looking at all of their footage, not just the footage for that specific time and day? How do you kind of uh, ease those concerns? Good question. So we would approach the homeowner and ask them, hey, um, you know, if we can, if we would give them a time limit or time a time gap uh, of when the incident happened and they could provide that to us. So um, it's totally up to them. They don't have to give us access. We don't need to look at the entire, um, you know, day uh, on the CCTV. So they could just provide us with that clip from specific time gap and when the accident, actual incident happened. So there, if that concern, if there is a concern there, then they could just simply provide us with that time limit. All right. And, and Constable, when you said you were looking at the map and it's kind of all over North Vancouver, are there certain areas where you see that people have joined more than others or is it kind of across the board? Um, I think in the lower Lonsdale, uh, you know, in the city area, it's more densely populated. So obviously there's more people with cameras. Um, I think that's the reason why. But, um, you know, it's kind of spread out, but more so in the inner city because uh, there's more high rises. All right. Uh, what do people do if they want to learn more about this? They can go to our website uh, and they can find out all the questions they have about the project. And if they want to participate, they can just simply email us at nv underscore cctv at rcmp slash grc dot gc dot ca. And, uh, and they can answer and we'll answer any questions they have. All right. Constable Mansour Sahak, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it.
Thanks, Jill, for having me. We were talking yesterday with Evan Bell. He is a resident in the Othello area near Hope. And we talked to him before, back in May as well, about his concerns that because of one particular road, Fish Camp Road, that was damaged during floods about a year and a half, a little more than that ago now, that he was going to lose access to his property. And when we talked to him yesterday, he said that was going to be happening as soon as tomorrow because the only access he has right now is the easement that the Trans Mountain Pipeline crews are using, and that's going to be closed as of tomorrow. And a lot of questions remain, mainly about Fish Camp Road, the access point, to whether or not it's a public road or a private road, and how somebody could, in fact, lose access. Well, Peter Adamo joins us once again as well, a director with the Fraser Valley Regional District. Peter, thank you so much for coming back to talk more about this. Thanks so much for having me back, Jill. We talked to you about this again in May when we first talked to Evan, and there was some hope, I think, that a solution could be found and still a lot of questions as to how this happened. Have you been able to get any more clarification about what is happening here? I'd love to say that I did, but uh, really it's it's a tremendously unfortunate situation. I'm still perplexed as to why some people aren't responding to our request for it. and trying to determine the access road, where it is, why not, why um, not a public road at this time, even though everything that we see, all the paperwork that we see that identifies it as a public road. Um, it's really a strange situation. Right. And and sorry, it's just a bit difficult. Sorry, your phone's cutting out a little bit there. It's a a bit difficult to hear you. But I I see you're saying that it's it's difficult that you're not getting a response when we're talking about, is this a public road? Is it a private road? Uh, When you say some people aren't responding, is it the Ministry of Transportation? Because it seems like they have been asked a lot of questions, but haven't been overly forthcoming with information about this. I believe that to be the case. Um, We've done a number of requests for information from them. We've requested a meeting. That meeting was scheduled, as Evan mentioned the other day, for uh, the 16th, which is this Friday. But prior to that request, we weren't under the, we were under the understanding that the access road that is currently being used via the pipeline access was going to be accessible till the end of the month of June. And then the pipeline contacted Mr. Bell, and basically they've sent me an information piece as well, saying that they are ahead of schedule and that they would be declassifying that road as soon as uh, Wednesday, so the 14th of this month. So that didn't give them, although they've had lots of time to prepare for this, they were still unexpected. It was unexpected to move that fast. In terms of, of the Ministry of Transportation, I don't know what's happened there. I requested the assistance from MLA Taggart. And she was tremendously helpful. We had a a good meeting. We requested that information together that we would try to do this as a local joint effort to assist these people and these owners. And it's still, although it was scheduled, it was quickly canceled as soon as the pipeline decided that they no longer needed access to that road for their own needs. So that totally shuts out the owners of that property, which is 11 or 12 people.
And does it go back then? Because what it's, it seems like there is not a clear answer on Fish Camp Road, which was the road that was damaged, the access road, and, and whether or not this is a private road or is a public road. And how do we find the answer to that? Well, I believe that the Ministry of Transportation has the information. I'm just not certain. I've seen three different documents, uh, one from the ministry, one from involving the hydro organization, um, a couple of emails and notices from people that originally owned the land um, years and years ago. Also, paperwork from the, from the pipeline, Trans Mountain Pipeline, that says they identified it as a public road when they had originally sought to have access to it to build their pipeline. And then they subsequently decided that they had a different route that they would be choosing, and they no longer needed that. But their paperwork did clearly state that it was a public road as well. Is it also a dispute between neighbours in that there perhaps could be some common ground here found, but there's a dispute about an RV park that one neighbour wanted to uh, put in the area and uh, neighbours not wanting others trespassing on their property. Is that making this more complicated? I believe so. I mean, whenever you have neighbours against neighbours, it makes for a really unfortunate and challenging situation within any community of any size and this is something that's been going on for for a period of time between these particular neighbors so i'm really not we we did offer solutions and none seem to have been accepted by anyone Um, mr bell to the best of my knowledge has offered solutions and even offered to pay for certain services that would fix this or solve this within his means Um, And nothing has come forward and no one wants to respond to this situation. So what happens then if, uh, I believe when we talked to him yesterday, he said there were were two days left until Trans Mountain. Like you said, they're ahead of schedule on the work being done on the pipeline. If they pack up the easement that he's been using to access his property, is that it? There's no access? Either you, you stay there because you're on there when the road's gone or you're just never accessing your house again or until there's some other type of resolution here? Well, that's that's the unfortunate part. We really don't know the the complete answer. However, with no access, they would have to park their vehicles on a fellow road. Um, They would have to hike in and trespass on someone else's property to gain access to their own property. And that's obviously not something that they want to do. Nobody wants to be penalized or charged with trespassing because they can't get to their own property where they've had access for the last 20 years. Don't forget, this is something that they've owned for 21 years under the belief that they always had access and that their road address states Fish Camp Road. So they really had no reason to believe that they didn't own access to a road. They didn't buy a property knowingly without access. Yeah, it's not like they purchased it and then uh, and then tried to plead that they didn't know this. This has changed since they've been there. Yeah, something something happened along the way. And aside from the, the neighborly dispute, which is also unfortunate, the, the facts remain that the Fraser Valley Regional District has never been, nor has, a, nor has ever been involved with developing roads and subdivisions. It's always been a Ministry of Transportation responsibility. And through the, at that time, the original time, through the District of Hope. So that was prior to the regional district taking over that map boundary of area. So this is the, this is the part that just boggles my mind why 
I can't get someone to sit down. Um, they'll send emails saying, no, it's no longer our responsibility. This always was a private road. Um, I just don't have any proof of, of them claiming that it is a private road. Hmm. So what do you do from this point on? Well, that's a great question. I want to see where they end up come tomorrow. Um, I don't know who's going to protect their vehicles if they have to park them on that road. What happens to these families? They have children in school. They all, all the adults work or are responsible for taking care of the children. They have pets. They have chickens. It sounds like a ridiculous thing that would be a movie of the week, but it's just gone on for so long and not getting the, the actual answers from the ministry right now is just, it's just perplexing me and everyone else that's been involved. Um, MLA Taggart has been tremendously helpful with her team in trying to assist us with the resolution. She's also met with um, Mayor Smith from Hope. They walked through the area last week, is my understanding. I've spoken with them. And again, none of us combined seem to be getting the answer. Um, and maybe it is something simple that we're all missing but I'd like to think between all of us, there's some pretty good brain power there, and I'm not understanding it. Hmm. All right. Well, I know uh, a lot of people, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Peter, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, and best of luck to the Bells and their family, and I hope we can really get this uh, resolved uh, nicely for everyone. Let's find out what is happening with former U.S. President Donald Trump. We know he has pleaded not guilty in a federal court in Miami. That's to 37 criminal counts. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon. I know it's very busy where you are in the Miami area. Can you tell us what's happening? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so this afternoon, as you had mentioned, uh, this was the day that uh, we had been anticipating with former President Trump being arraigned on those 37 charges. He showed up at the courthouse uh, at about uh, 1.50 local time. The entire process was ended uh, within the 3 o'clock local time. And just within the last 20 minutes or so, the former president uh, left the courthouse. He's actually at a Cuban restaurant uh, in Miami right now where he's been making some comments going after uh, what he calls a corrupt government. But inside that courthouse, uh, he sat silently. He was wearing a blue suit uh, and it was his lawyers who did the talking for him pleading not guilty on his behalf to those 37 charges and not a huge surprise I'm sure given what he's been saying even since the news broke about these criminal counts but what happens now that this part of this is over what do we expect to how are things expected to unfold from this point on well, we know that he was released on his own recognizance uh, and that uh, he was released without conditions, but he is not allowed to communicate with any potential witness in this case. Uh, we're waiting to find out when next trial dates may be, but this uh, this court uh, has a kind of uh, reputation of moving at a quicker pace. And, uh, and from legal experts, they were saying the earliest or rather the quickest we could see a trial uh, begin might be the end of August. So obviously that would be at a far quicker pace than what we're seeing with the uh, trial on 
the indictments that came down at the state level in Manhattan. But this is something that could realistically uh, be up and running, at least trial-wise, within the next several weeks. Hmm. And what do we know about the charges themselves in that uh, 37 federal charges again? Uh, these are charges that relate to violations under the Espionage Act. We're talking about classified documents, national security information. What do we know about the specifics of what he's charged with? So, so look, the information that was released in that indictment uh, was explosive, and we heard from his former national security advisor, John Bolton, who argues uh, that, that lives uh, were put at risk because of the information that had been kind of strewn about uh, at Mar-a-Lago. We also heard from his former attorney general, Bill Barr, who said that the evidence was damning and that if the government is able to prove its case, that, quote-unquote, Donald Trump would be toast. These are uh, these are big charges that the former president is facing, as you mentioned, some of them under the Espionage Act, and that is because of that willful retention uh, of national security documents that have uh, that had to do with, with America's nuclear programs, with potential attacks uh, on hostile nations, uh, and information that would be shared between the Five Eyes country, which includes Canada. Uh, and it really does underscore that there could be a potential credibility risk here for, for the United States, given the fact that sensitive secrets that would only be shared amongst the highest levels of just select governments were within arm's reach of people who were simply walking around a golf course. Hmm. And he maintains as well, I think the quote was uh, when talking about investigators, he said that I supplied them openly without question, security tapes from Mar-a-Lago. I had nothing to hide, nor do I now. So he seems quite uh, quite defiant that uh, this that he has done nothing wrong. And uh, from what I understand, are we expecting uh, he will be making more comments a bit later today? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's growing more difficult, according to legal experts, for Donald Trump to make these claims that he did nothing wrong, given the fact that government subpoenas were willfully ignored. Uh, and we see the pictures in the indictments of those boxes that contained uh, sensitive documents kind of in bathrooms and in showers and in ballrooms uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and, and from uh, a state attorney that I spoke with uh, earlier in the day, he made a point of saying, again, lives were put at risk because of this. Uh, so it's hard to see how, how a defense could be made that nothing went wrong, especially to Jill, uh, when the former president's own lawyer became a key witness in this case, he was forced to break attorney-client privilege. Uh, we will hear from the former president again. He is back en route to New Jersey to his club in Bedminster, where he's expected to hold a fundraiser tonight because, as we've seen Trump do in the past, he monetizes on potential legal and political scandals that he's facing, and in doing so, oftentimes secures more support from within the base. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the photos that we've seen of this as well, and the the fact that you see the documents kind of spilled onto the floor of a storage room. Like you said, they were accessible. Others were kind of in open doorways. Is that surprising at all? Of course it's surprising, and, and that's when his national security advisor, amongst others, had said that this really and truly is a national security nightmare, because these are governments that are sometimes so classified that the classification levels, Jill, are classified themselves. That goes to show just how top secret uh, some of the information is, and to see it uh, in a box that the former president you know, refused to give back, according to his own lawyers, or, or, or even in the evidence says that you know he may have asked his lawyers to potentially destroy the documents in order order to kind of get around investigators, uh, it, it makes this it makes this case far more unprecedented than what anyone had thought it was going to be. And this is already an unprecedented moment in American history. Never before had a former president been, you know, indicted on state level charges. And here we are now with a former president facing uh, uh, federal charges 
all of which, you know, could result in a 100-year sentence at the maximum. That goes to show just the gravity of this situation. We will be watching to see what happens next. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.